Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, November the, today is Thursday, November 25th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to this special edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the tragic death of 27 migrants that were drowned in the English Channel earlier today. The Ethiopian government is seeking to correct the false narrative related to the attacks being leveled at the country from the United States and its surrogates inside the Horn of Africa state. Uh, Sudan's uh, restored interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak has called for the police not to brutalize demonstrators that are still out protesting for the full restoration of democracy. And Egypt uh, has announced the reopening of the Luxor Museum. In the second hour, we continue our examination of the exoneration of two men falsely accused of being assassins of Malcolm X. And the daughter of Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz, Malika, 
uh, was found dead earlier in the week in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, finally, we pay tribute to the indigenous people and their struggle to reclaim independence and sovereignty inside of North America. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Ben la vie Monte ma dioula si porte N'yanto ma kambogo Nandi mi poile Ponda l'ingigi se yoko Oh, oh. 
migration into France, uh, saying that when migrants reach French shores with hopes of heading on to Britain, it is already too late. Macron said uh, France is deploying army drones as part of stepped-up efforts to patrol its northern coastline and help rescue migrants at sea. But he also said that a greater collective effort is needed, uh, referring to France as a transit country for Britain-bound migrants. Uh, We need to strengthen cooperation with Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, but also the British and the European Commission. He said on a visit to Croatia, uh, we need stronger European cooperation. Migration is an explosive issue in Europe uh, where leaders often accuse one another of not doing enough to either prevent migrants from entering their countries or from continuing on uh, to the other nations. Ministers from France, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Britain, and the European Union officials will meet on Sunday to discuss increasing efforts to crack down on migrant smuggling networks. Macron's government announced that they will convene in uh, Calais, uh, one of the French coastal towns where migrants gather, looking for ways uh, to cross to the British coast uh, that is visible from France on clear days. Uh, Seaside communities on both sides of the channel were reeling uh, on Thursday uh, from the sinking horrific death toll. And uh, another news uh, taking place uh, in uh, the Horn of African Nation of Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopian then foreign nationals of Ethiopian origin have been holding uh, rallies across the world. Uh, This is according uh, to uh, the recent information uh, released by the Ethiopian Herald newspaper. It says that in Pretoria, South Africa, uh, there was a demonstration against the U.S. administration's terrorizing propaganda aimed at evacuating its citizens from Ethiopia while the country is still peaceful and safe. Uh, staying with South Africa's uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation during the demonstrations, Ethiopians said that the government of Ethiopia has tried several times to solve the conflict through negotiations, but the terrorist TPLF has continued to escalate situations and pushed its warmongering spirit to this point. As reports about Ethiopia through social media these days are not positive, everyone has to be well aware of the trick uh, behind the dissemination of the futile attempts. As to the rally participants, the United States is supporting terrorist TPLF group every time and said um, to stop the the ongoing conflict and and also to stop blaming the government. However, before the conflict, the government has sent more than 10 times the priests, sheiks, and uh, community leaders, peace-loving mothers to Tigray to negotiate uh, peacefully. Uh, the United States even did not condemn worse, uh, even entirely ignored, when uh, terrorist TPLF aggressively invaded Amhara and the Afar states and the barbaric massacres uh, perpetuated uh, by in uh, Mykandra, uh, Ag- Ag- Agamsa, uh, Kombosha, uh, Gelongso, and Shena, among other locations. They also urged the mainstream media to stop disseminating fake news for instance, Addis Ababa was not under siege. It is quite safe and peaceful uh, more uh, than any time else. The uh, U.S. has uh, we currently uh, called on its citizens to leave the country, but every part of the nation is still peaceful and secure. Even some U.S. citizens are visiting Ethiopia as they have attested to this fact. Uh, 
They said, uh, quote, all Ethiopians uh, will send the terrorist TPLF to its internal residence of hell, and Ethiopia will entirely restore peace and development. This is a prime time when we all across the globe, including Africans, have to stand together against colonial actors through local insurgents to help the continent rise, overcoming the U.S. meddling in its internal affairs. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, uh, following the October coup, uh, the Sudanese uh, Army Commander-in-Chief, Abdel Fattah Burhan, uh, has, of course, uh, been involved uh, in destabilizing the country uh, in an attempt uh, to bring about uh, military dominance inside of uh, the country of of Sudan. Uh, since uh, October 25th, uh, the people of Sudan have been battling against a military coup d'etat that even overthrew an interim government that had been endorsed uh, by and also supported uh, by uh, the Western imperialist countries. Of course, this illustrates uh, clearly uh, the complicated situation that exists uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan. And, of course, uh, these uh, other activities, uh, which, of course, have uh, been involved in destabilizing Sudan uh, for the last uh, two and a half years, will not be resolved uh, under the current conditions uh, that the United States and other Western imperialist countries have imposed on uh, the Republic of Sudan. And uh, these uh, and other features uh, you can, of course, check out uh, over uh, our website, the Pan-African Newswire website. All you have to do is log on uh, to this site at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And um, we want to remind our listeners um, that uh, the Pan-African News. Uh, is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, and research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And all you have to do is log on to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, uh, you can uh, read uh, about uh, the developments uh, taking place, of course, uh, over uh, the entire uh, African continent. Uh, listen uh, to uh, various um, types of uh, cultural presentations. And of course, uh, all of this uh, will, will of course, uh, be done, you know, over uh, the Pan-African News Wire. Yeah. And, of course, um, you can also have access to uh, today's program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. 
and uh, that can be uh, retrieved uh, by merely going to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And um, by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com, Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to uh, today's program, but well over a thousand other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, dating back uh, many, many years. And yes, uh, this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal? And uh, I am your host, and uh, we'll take a uh, musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for uh, this week.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and of course, uh, we're here uh, for this special edition uh, of our program uh, for Thursday, November the 25th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit, and uh, I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, once again uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, just this last past uh, week, uh, the world was shocked uh, at uh, the news that uh, the one of the youngest daughters of uh, Malcolm X uh, had been found dead in her uh, home uh, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, just this last past uh, Monday. And, of course, uh, this comes amid uh, news uh, related to the exoneration of two men uh, who uh, served uh, over 20 years in prison uh, for being involved in this assassination. Uh, and, of course, um, despite the fact that the state had evidence that they were not involved. So we're going to listen uh, to a, um audio file, uh, which uh, we had started to play in our last broadcast, but due to technical difficulties, we had to uh, uh, stop. Uh, but we're going to run this again. Uh, this is uh, an interview with uh, two investigators who worked on this case uh, over a number of years from the Innocence Project. Let's listen in. Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam spent 22 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. These men became victims of the same racism and injustice that were the antithesis of all that Malcolm X stood for. This doesn't solve Malcolm's murder. But at least it, it brings more uh, truth to the matter of what actually happened. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Chris Lorioso in for David Ushery. Today... We delve deeper into a fascinating and sometimes heartbreaking story of justice delayed for far too long. I am joined by Vanessa Hopkins, who's the director of special litigation at the Innocence Project, and Deborah Francois of the Shanis Law Firm. They represent the family of Khalil Islam, and they represent Muhammad Aziz, two men who were falsely convicted of the killing of Malcolm X. It is really an earth-shattering story. And Deborah, let me start with you. Uh, can you talk to me just from a personal standpoint? Uh, the work that you have done has, has so many levels to it, but perhaps the most important one is the human level. Uh, there's a man who spent more than 20 years in prison and another one who died after he spent more than 20 years in prison whose names are now cleared. Exactly. I mean, this has been an exoneration in the making for 55, 56 years. And as you touched, it's an understatement to say that Muhammad, Khalil, and their family suffered tremendously. The two men combined spent 42 years in prison, several of them in solitary confinement. At the time of their conviction, they were torn from their families, including their young children who are as young as a year old. And their children have to grow up without a father and bearing the stigma that their fathers were labeled as the assassins of one of the greatest civil rights activists in the world. So they have suffered tremendously, and it's just been a lot for them to take in. I wonder, Vanessa, one of the antecedent questions here really is, what evidence was there ever that these two men were involved in the assassination of Malcolm X? 
Well, in short, there was no reliable evidence. Um, they were convicted at a trial where the state presented conflicting eyewitness accounts um, of what happened that day. And so you had eyewitness testimony, which is the leading cause of wrongful conviction. But I think in this case, um, it was pretty apparent from the transcripts that um, witnesses were coached and their accounts just conflicted with one another with their prior um, testimony. And so there was not a shred of reliable evidence to implicate them. And in fact, both had um, alibis at the time. Mr. Aziz had a leg injury and had even seen a doctor earlier that day and so um, the, and was at home. And there was additional evidence uncovered through the post-conviction reinvestigation that, you know, further supported the alibi and undermined the eyewitness testimony. Um, you know, but, but most importantly, there was suppressed evidence. The government hid evidence that they knew from the start, you know, but from the day that the crime happened um, that pointed away from Mr. Um, Islam and Mr. Aziz and, and two other individuals. Deborah, what has it been like representing the family of one of these men and representing the other one himself, uh, long having professed their innocence? And there has long been a number of questions about uh, why it was that the FBI and NYPD were unable to prevent this assassination, given there was a lot of known animosity between the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X at the time. I mean, it's certainly been a privilege representing Muhammad and Khalil, and I just want to note that it's truly been a team effort because over the years, there's just been a chorus of powerful and significant voices shouting from the rooftops that Muhammad and Khalil are innocent, that they had nothing to do with this crime at all. They never should have been arrested, charged, or convicted, and that's just been in plain sight for over five decades. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is a time where uh, law enforcement's role in... Um, arresting people of color uh, and the reasons they're for and the prosecutorial prog uh, process that, that unfolds is under a lot of scrutiny and rightfully so, but this happened back in 1965 and 1966. What lessons do you think we need to learn from the errors that were made in this prosecution? I think that, you know, the issues that were, um, you know, that plagued really the investigation and trial here and were of the moment in 1965 are just as relevant today. I think part of the message of this case is just that these um, inequities um, of the system continue to persist. So there is a lot of work to do. And I think that the lessons of this case, we don't even fully understand right now. This reinvestigation focused on the wrongful convictions of Mr. Aziz and Mr. Islam, and their innocence has been established. But why did the government allow these assassinations to take place? Like you mentioned, what was their role? There were a lot of undercover officers who were in the ballroom at the time, had information. Why were the true individuals never um, never pursued, even though the government had information about them? So those are questions that you know we can't learn until we fully understand exactly what happened. Are you convinced that the misconduct here was sloppy police investigation and sloppy prosecution, or was this more likely willful on the part of the police and the prosecutors? 
think it's tough to answer that question because as Vanessa noted, the focus of this reinvestigation was about the wrongful conviction and innocence of Muhammad and Khalil. But I do think that it's clear that the investigation was shoddy because they were withholding information pointing to Khalil and Muhammad's innocence, information that they had within hours of the assassination of Malcolm X. So that clearly was not a thorough and comprehensive investigation and one that we would expect of the FBI and NYPD to uphold. And I think that it was easy for the officials to dismiss this case just as black on black violence. And I think it allowed them to shirk their responsibilities and give Muhammad and Khalil their fair day in, in court. And that's exactly what happened. They were denied their right to have a fair trial. And the exact reasons why, still unclear, but it is clear that they didn't get their justice at that time. That, of course, is, is frustrating to the public. And I, uh, Vanessa, I'll ask you this question. Um, the NYPD and the FBI have said they, they cooperated fully in this reinvestigation. Is that true? Well, they certainly provided um, additional documents to assist in the review of the case. But, you know, just going back and taking a look at, you know, how this investigation unfolded, the Audubon Ballroom where the crime happened um, was released for a dance to occur within hours of the crime having been committed. Um, the very rostrum that had bullet holes in it was, you know, decades later found in the basement of the Audubon Ballroom. So even by the standards of 50 years ago, this is not an investigation that showed any care or concern for getting to the truth. And while we don't know the scope of the misconduct, the fact is, is that the NYPD had an undercover officer in the ballroom who was an eyewitness and didn't reveal that. That person would have had valuable information that could have assisted in the investigation and, um, you know, really helped with the identity of who committed the crime. And they didn't, you know, they chose not to reveal it. And they had documents that had um, the FBI, you know, information about who participated. And there's just no, no justifiable reason to hide that um, from the defense and from the world, which is what they did at the time. Do either of you think the NYPD or FBI have information today that has not been shared with the public or in this reinvestigation that would shed some light on exactly how these mistakes, errors, or, or, or worse were made? Once our joint reinvestigation with the district attorney's office um, reached the point where the, the district attorneys agreed that these convictions needed to be vacated, you know, that is the end of the investigation, this focus on the exoneration of two, you know, innocent men. Um, but the, the scope of who knows what, you know, that's going to have to be taken up by a commission or other entities who are independent and have that question um, as their the main purpose of the, the scope of that inquiry. Do, do you think there should be a congressional investigation? A congressional investigation would be a great mechanism for taking a look at this issue. What do you think, Deborah, gets lost in this discussion? I mean, there's so many layers to it. I've tried to touch on, um, and I think this this explains so much of the interest. This is this is a part of history that that a lot of people uh, have forgotten or never knew, um, and 
the, the questions that surrounded the, the deep surveillance that was going on uh, of Malcolm X and his inner circle at the time and why that surveillance couldn't have prevented uh, the assassination has always uh, been problematic for people to digest. That's one layer. There are other layers. What do you think gets lost in this? You're right. There are a lot of layers to this. And I think what gets lost or more accurately what is difficult to fully comprehend, honestly, I think is just the scope of the misconduct that happened here. I think we all have a sense of it. We certainly got the sense of it through this joint reinvestigation and uncovering the number of documents that we did, just the vast amount of information that the FBI and NYPD were withholding. But, and I think we all appreciated, and obviously that was a strong basis for showing how it was so clear that Muhammad and Khalil are innocent. But I don't know if we'll fully understand the full scope of it. I still think that um, there's a lot to be said about what other information that they've been withholding. As Vanessa noted, we did get enough information to for the district attorney to realize that their convictions just clearly can't stand. But I think that the magnitude of this, a little, uh, you know, we will. It'll take time for I think it, for us to fully appreciate that. Lastly, Muhammad Aziz is now 83 years old. He has been free for some time, but his name is now cleared. What does that mean for him? What will the next weeks and months and hopefully years look like for him? Well, as Muhammad said in court yesterday, he doesn't need a piece of paper to tell him that he is innocent. That's something that he's already always known, something that his family has always known. Khalil and his family have always known that he's innocent. And they've been joined by so many others who have already known that. So I think that this their exoneration is definitely important and momentous, and it's important for the record to be cleared, but it's bittersweet and um, I think vindicating to them as well for them to finally get official recognition of what they and so many others have known for so long. Uh, Vanessa Potkin, Director of Special Litigation at the Innocence Project, and Deborah Francois at Shane's Law. I want to thank you both uh, for joining us. And thank you for bringing this to light. It is a momentous discovery for so many people who are just now going back and learning about the irregularities in this case. Other folks have been looking into this for years. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit to the man behind the documentary, the Netflix documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? I want to welcome Abdur Rahman Mohammed. He is a historian, a documentarian, and the man behind the Netflix documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? Mr. Mohammed, you have been asking that very question for decades, who killed Malcolm X? And it seems the news this week is about who did not kill Malcolm X. Thank you for joining us. And can you tell us your reflections, uh, broadly speaking, on these two men being exonerated? Sadly, one of them is not with us. One of them was in the courtroom. Yes, uh, it's a bittersweet victory because, like you say, uh, one of the men, his name was uh, Khalil Islam. At that time, he was known as Thomas 15X Johnson. He is no longer with us today, and uh, I knew him towards the end of his life as well and the grim struggle that he was fighting to clear his name, and it was so sad, uh, the reality of knowing that he probably would not live long enough to see that happen. He was quite ill at that time. And so, it, it, as his sons said, Amin and Shahid uh, Johnson, it, it, it's a bittersweet victory. Uh, even in the case of the, uh, the, the living uh, exoneree, uh, Muhammad Abdul Aziz, 
He was known at that time as Norman 3X Butler. Uh, yes, it's a victory, but he, you know, he's 83 years old and he had 20 years taken from his life, which destroyed his relationship with his family, with his children, with his grandchildren, with his great-grandchildren. And so, like the judge said, you know, although uh, it's through the court throughout this conviction, nevertheless, it can never restore back what was taken from these men. Can you take us back to 1965 and help us understand a little bit about why these two men were targeted as suspects in the first place? In the Nation of Islam, there were men who were seen as vanguards of the movement. There was a paramilitary wing of the movement called the Fruit of Islam that acted as security and uh, enforced the rules of the movement, so to speak. These men were considered the muscle, if you will, of the movement, the, the protecting arm of the movement. They were singled out because it was easy to single them out. The Manhattan District Attorney has said this was a grave failure of law enforcement. And of course, for decades, people have surmised researched and looked into, including yourself, the role of law enforcement back in February of 1965. What do you think the role played by the FBI and NYPD was back then? Uh, well, I don't think about it. I know what they did. They created hatred and hostility against Malcolm X. They planted uh, false stories in the media about him. Uh, articles that suggested that he was hungry for power, that he was going to be, you know, the leader one day, that he was the number two man and things of this nature, which, which they knew would create jealousy and hostility against Malcolm even before he left the nation. After he left the nation, the, the hatred and the vitriol and the propaganda campaign uh, against him was put into overdrive. And this was fueled by FBI informants and agents who were uh, waging um, this hidden war against Malcolm. Their hands are quite dirty in all of this. And the, and the question remains, you know, how much did they know about his assassination? This reinvestigation by the DA's office, by the Innocence Project, uh, is clear to say that they found no co conspiracy on the part of the NYPD, no conspiracy on the part of the government to assassinate Malcolm X. But the question left unanswered is, we know that there was sort of a deep kind of surveillance going on of Malcolm X and his inner circle. We also know that uh, it was no secret he was being targeted. A short time before the assassination, his home was firebombed. Why do you think they couldn't prevent this assassination. They could have if they wanted to, but they didn't want to. You know, if you look at the newspapers uh, in the aftermath of the assassination, there was a sense of good riddance. He preached violence and he died violently and he got what he preached, so to speak. You know, uh, there, there were no tears for Malcolm X in the media and uh, the law enforcement despised him, reviled him. And they looked at it as a good thing that he was gone. So many people right now look at the exonerations of, of Khalil Islam and Muhammad Aziz, and they can't help but draw parallels to the debate we're having today about 
how carefully law enforcement uh, deals with people of color when they are entangled with the justice system or perhaps how carelessly they are sometimes dealt with. What, what do you want to say about the importance of looking beyond just the injustice done to these two men and relating it to what we're struggling with as a society even today? I wouldn't want to suggest that um, or, or come away with this with the idea that things are just as bad today as they were back then. That would be false. That's not true. Uh, we're talking about a period before the uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, before affirmative action, black studies programs, before the first black president who was elected twice. We've had a black governor of the capital of the Confederacy, Virginia. We have black prosecutors uh, in most major cities, at least half of the police force are African-American. So I would want to suggest, you know, that we're struggling with the very same struggle that was ongoing at that time. But we do have work to do. We do have to make reforms in the system. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's too easy. It's still too easy to set up a black man, a black woman, uh, lock them up, throw away the key. I mean, there are exonerations going on all the time in municipalities are paying out tens of millions of dollars in wrongful convictions. And that's because it's simply too easy to uh, lock a black man or woman away for a long time and forget about them. You know, it's just not uh, taken very seriously. We started this discussion by talking about who didn't kill Malcolm X. Your work in the documentary, which asks that question, suggests that there are good leads about who did kill Malcolm X. Can you talk a little bit about what should happen now that these two men have been exonerated and to a great degree we have an unsolved mystery back on our hands? Well, no, we don't have an unsolved mystery because we know who killed Malcolm X. We know who carried it out. We know their names. The subject of Malcolm X's assassination uh, was dead letter frozen in the history books and it was uh, resurrected, uh, propelled into the public consciousness through that explosive revelation uh, that I made back in 2010, where I positively identified the shotgun assassin. And I've also subsequently published photographs of the other uh, members of the assassination team. So we, we know who carried it out. And in fact, we've always known that these men were innocent. On the streets, it was known that these men were innocent. And this the, the judgment at that time in the case was never accepted by historians and researchers. We've never accepted that judgment back then, but there was no advocacy, no one, there was no political will to right this wrong. We've known this for a long time. It's only the documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X, that put this back into the public imagination at a time when the nation was dealing with uh, our racial past and, 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 and taking stock, a great reckoning was taking place. So it was the, it was the, the zeitgeist, uh, so to speak, that, that, brought this, uh, that brought this to pass. But before, How, yes. What have the last few days been like for you? Perhaps more important, what have the last few years been like? Um, of course, it's a struggle. You know, I'm an old activist myself. And um, 
this was a an effort motivated by just passion and commitment, you know, to doing the right thing. Okay, it just grew out of it was it was a it was an effort that grew out of my commitment to uh, social justice and love for Brother Malcolm and the the you know profound the profound uh, wrong that was done here. And it just disturbed me greatly that uh, there was no desire to write it. And I, and I couldn't understand, you know, how so many people could know that there were two innocent men sitting in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And the true killers were walking the streets unmolested in Newark, New Jersey. Um, it, it, it was just an affront. It was an affront to all that is right and all that is decent. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it's been a struggle, and um, I don't like to talk about that. Uh, that's, you know, I did what I did and for my own reasons, and, and I'm very thankful and grateful and appreciative that it culminated in the outcome that we got yesterday. It was surreal. It, it was a heavy, heavy moment in that courtroom to witness that kind of history and exoneration after more than a half century. Imagine that. I, I think that's unprecedented in American history. I don't think it's ever happened before. So I'm very grateful. Um, Abdur Rahman Muhammad, I want to thank you for joining us, the man behind the documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? And it is not an exaggeration to say a man whose work led to the clearing of two men's names, two people falsely convicted of killing Malcolm X. Thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, dealing uh, with the recent exoneration of uh, two of the uh, men who were convicted uh, in the assassination of Malcolm X, uh, which occurred on February 21st of 1965. The trial took place uh, during 1966, and of course, uh, one of the defendants committed the murder. Uh, also uh, testified that the other two uh, co-defendants were not guilty, and uh, refused uh, in the courtroom to release the names of the other individuals who were initially uh, their names were released, uh, and, um, of course, nothing was done about it uh, by the authorities. And uh, as we mentioned also earlier, uh, Malaika, uh, the youngest daughter, one of the youngest daughters, a twin of uh, Malcolm X, uh, who was actually born um, months after his assassination, uh, was found uh, dead uh, earlier this week uh, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, no real details on uh, her death uh, available. They said uh, she had been ill for some time. They did not suspect uh, any foul play. However, uh, we still are waiting uh, to get further details on these developments. And African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, November 25th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today, uh, Thursday, November 25th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And that was uh, the music of the legendary uh, Candy Staten. And darling, you're all that I have. And uh, right now we want to move into a very important uh, interview uh, based upon uh, research and a book uh, done on uh, the struggle uh, taking place uh, in the southeast part of the United States uh, during uh, the early uh, decades of the 19th century uh, where Africans and indigenous people are united uh, to wage a war against the United States government 
And uh, let's listen uh, to this uh, interview uh, dealing uh, with the so-called Black uh, Seminole Wars of the uh, 19th century. Let's listen in. This evening on The Rock Newman Show, the Black Seminoles of Florida participated in one of the most successful slave revolts in U.S. history. Historian Dr. Anthony Dixon has studied this group of Native Americans and blacks and joins us to share their struggles and determinations and how they resisted the efforts of the U.S. military to keep them enslaved. Coming up right now on The Rock Newman Show. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show from the campus of historic Howard University. I'm Rock Newman, and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. In the early 1950s, Hollywood films not only depicted Native Americans as savages, but the roles were often played by white actors. Let's take a look. I bring him a most important message. I do not trust you. Silence your tongue, young one. He has been in council with his chiefs. Come, we will find him. My guest is an African-American history professor with expert knowledge about the efforts to enslave the entire black Seminole population in Florida and the Second Seminole War. Joining me now is author and historian Dr. Anthony Dixon. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show. Good afternoon, brother. Thank you for having me. Let me say from the outset that um, your book here called uh, Florida's Florida's Negro War is one I really wish we had several hours to examine this evening. The Seminole Wars are um, little-known history facts, much mischaracterized when it has been talked about, and I want to get into I want to get into all of that. Before I do, though, I want to get a little uh, introduce my audience to to you, Doctor okay. Doctor Anthony Dixon. Um, we were talking last night, and you said something that you would have no idea how much it resonated with me because you mentioned one of my favorite characters in all of American history, and that is Jackie Robinson. Okay. And then you mentioned another one named Mary McLeod Bethune. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind, as we start this here, if you would share what it, how their paths crossed, in the great state of Florida. Okay. Um, well, of course, Mary, Mary McLeod came into Florida in the early 1900s, and she established a, good, a school for African-American girls, uh, and it went on to become what we call now Bethune-Cookman University. The relationship between the two was such. Um, of course, Jackie Robinson played, for, uh, played baseball for the Dodgers. Their spring training was in Daytona. Mm -hmm. However, um, Jackie 
could not stay in, in Daytona. There, was, there wasn't a rooming house. There wasn't a hotel that would accept him. Uh, so he would spend, initially he started spending uh, his time in a nearby city called Sanford. Uh, if you recall, this is where Trayvon Martin yes. was murdered. Right. Um, and he would have to ride over from Sanford into Daytona for practice. Mm -hmm. uh, but through, in time rather, um, he developed a relationship with Mary McLeod. And so uh, he began to spend more, more time on campus at Bethune-Cookman and he was welcomed there. So he didn't have to drive all the way back to Sanford mm -hmm. uh, every day, especially after a, a long day of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, he was allowed to um, come over to Bethune-Cookman mm -hmm. and he began to spend a lot more time with Mary McLeod. Uh, by this time, she was uh, toward the end of her career and, and life yeah. um, for that matter. Uh, but they still developed a very good relationship and we still have, and we do have rather, archival material to attest to that relationship. Yeah, and th where he would come visit her at the house yeah. is a home that she worked from and created a small uh, museum of sorts initially in a room? No, what she did was she created a foundation. Uh -huh. She created a foundation on her in, at her home. She added a uh, room to it as an office. Yeah. And through that, she began to continue her work for the African-American community. Uh, and when I say African-American community, I mean as a whole uh, with the National Council of Negro Women, yeah. um, her work with the Black Cabinet, yeah. um, subsequent work years later mm -hmm. uh, through those relationships, all of those things she culminated into a foundation. Right. And so uh, the, how, the home itself um, has now become a museum. Uh -huh. So the foundation is still there. Um, NCNW still comes on campus. Yeah. Um, we still do uh, some of, carry on some of her work, some of the community work that she she started. Uh, but we also now interpret her life through through the house and through the museum. And so now her her house is a museum itself. And who's the executive director? Uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have the executive director of the Mary McLeod Bethune yeah. House and Museum. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that as well as the uh, archives that is located right next door in the built in mm -hmm. the uh, library. Right. And right. so we have the university archives that has the complete Mary McLeod Bethune collection, mm -hmm. uh, which includes her work here yeah. in D.C. Have you been to, by any chance, the uh, National Council of Negro Women building here, offices here in Washington, D.C.? No, I have Man, not. Man, uh, it, 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 it was the first owned property by African Americans uh, right downtown here on Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, no, yeah, that I did yeah. not one, know. One of, one of our giants, Dorothy Height, yeah. uh, headed up the uh, National Council of Negro Women for many years and obviously was, uh, you know, worshipped uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and, and carried on in a great tradition. And uh, she put it all together, man, she and the, her team, to, to get that building down there. Yes, she did a great job. And she was also um, very close to Mary as well. Yeah. Um, she was a regular guest on campus as well. Uh -huh. um, as a few other activists and, and uh, other people, uh, known people, uh, African Americans, um, that we give notoriety to. Yeah. And 
I'll be honest, not all relationships will glitz and glamour sure, and gold. Sure, you know, um, sure. relationship come to mind quickly. Um, Zora Neale, uh-huh. Zora Neale Hurston, yes, actually taught at Bethune Cookman mm-hmm. um, for a short stint. Mm-hmm. Um, but we find that that relationship, you know, two bright stars don't always yeah. <laughs> shine together. Yeah. So um, her stint at Bethune Cookman was short, mm-hmm. uh, but nevertheless. Um, it was impactful. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, you, uh, you, you wrote this book, uh, Florida's Negro War, uh, Black Seminoles and the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842. Give us a little bit about your background and please tell us how you became interested in uh, publishing uh, this book. First, um, I've uh, even in undergrad, uh, history was my major, uh, Afro-Am studies was my minor, mm-hmm. um, and I worked, I had the, the honor of working under Dr. Larry Rivers, uh, who actually wrote the uh, anthology piece on slavery in Florida. And so when I returned to uh, Florida A&M uh, from my undergrad, after receiving it, I returned for my master's, I became his graduate assistant. Mm-hmm. And in that, he was always sending me uh, to the library, sending me to the state archives, different places. And so for me, I became interested. My area um, was slavery and reconstruction. Just just to clear, uh, Dr. Larry Rivers was president of Fort Valley State? Yes. Uh-huh. The same okay. doctor, le- he left uh-huh. from Florida A&M uh-huh. and went on to become president of Fort Valley State. Right. Um, now, in that... Um, my studies for and uh, looking at um, slavery and reconstruction, um, I started then kind of narrowing the focus and I started looking at resistance and uh, resistance to slavery and oppression. Mm-hmm. And so in doing so, I came across this, this very unique, outstanding story of African Americans who actually resisted uh, slavery, they re- re- resisted their re-enslavement, they resisted the enslavement of their, um, of their offsprings, of their children and their descendants, and they ended up going into a war, partnering with the Seminole Native Americans and going into a war uh, that we now consider the longest and deadliest Native American war fought on U.S. soil. But we are also now looking at it and then examining it as possibly, and what I like to call, um, the largest slave rebellion on U.S. soil. We talk about the Point Coupe, we talk about uh, Nat Turner, and of course we talk about Denmark and his, the... Um, Denmark Vesey. The right, mm-hmm. Denmark Vesey mm-hmm. and the failed attempt. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about this group of people who actually... Um, absconded, got their freedom, retained their freedom, fought the U.S. government for seven long years, and were able to keep their freedom. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we look at it in that that vernacular and and we start looking at the dynamics from that perspective, we have to to start looking at the Second Seminole War as a a slave rebellion. And and furthermore, not only... If we look at it as a slave rebellion, we now have to say that it is the largest. 
Yeah. On U.S. soil. Yeah. And, you know, on the clip that was played, when I first saw it, it just made my head explode because it's titled Seminole War Cries. And it said, Thunder and Fury of Savage Vengeance. So the depiction back in the 1950s, up until that time and since that time, Mm-hmm. has so often been just of that, that when, which speaks to the issue that until the lion is able to write his story, the, cap, the, 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 the one doing the capturing is always going to be glorified. And that was just so prominent when you see these kinds of films about this, about this war and about this time. In your book, one of the first things that caught me was you write, you write, black maroon settlements in the wilderness existed by utilizing a pan-Africanist perspective in the social, political, religious, and military organization of their communities. And you say that, why? Uh, given their roots themselves, mm-hmm. initially, um, most of your initial Florida Maroons are actually uh, abscond runaways I was going to ask you to describe Maroons. Okay. Maroons are basically enslaved people who decide uh, to run away, to abscond from the plantation, and eke out their existence in the wilderness um, however uh, they can. And so they go into the most... um, what we would call treacherous portions, especially for uh, Europeans. And when I say that, I mean the, uh, particularly the swampy areas because uh, the swamps and water, of course, bring the mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes would bring um, yellow fever. And Europeans and their descendants were highly susceptible to, uh, to yellow fever. Mm-hmm. So they would specifically go, like the Great Dismal Swamp, on the North Carolina, Virginia area, mm-hmm. and then into Florida, um, in the different areas in Florida, um, for those specific reasons that they could uh, eke out their own existence. Now, where these people come from are uh, primarily out of the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands, mm-hmm. and what we call Gullah, mm-hmm. and which is now, uh, of course, the only national heritage area dedicated to African-American culture. We call it the Gullah, Gullah Heritage Corridor, right. Gullah Geechee um, National Heritage Corridor. Now, these people, uh, your Gullah people, are basically people who take West African languages, because it's now a homogenized group of West Africans sure. now. And so they uh, create a language that we call Geechee, and they incorporate West African culture, West African language, and then they incorporate uh, plantation life, specifically mm. English plantation life, mm-hmm. um, and, of course, English words. And so they created their own culture. We call it Gullah. We call their language Geechee. Now, when these people began to run away, um, they began to head south. I know most people think the uh, Underground Railroad always went north. Right. But the first Underground Railroad actually went south mm-hmm. into at that time, La Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and the Spanish held Florida, and they called it La Florida at this right. time. Right. And so 
because they are arguing, and when I say they, I mean the English and the Spanish, mm -hmm. they are fighting for control over parts of the East Coast. They are actually fighting for e English, all of English and British. The English and the Spanish. Uh, uh, they uh -huh. are fighting. Uh, but I, I, I meant to say, I meant to say the Spanish and the British. Right. The right. Spanish mm -hmm. and the British are mm -hmm. fighting for control over the East Coast, basically. Right. right. Uh, the Spanish have laid claim from as far as Miami all the way up to Newfoundland, um, Canada. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the English are disputing that. Yeah. And so what happens is the Spanish understand that the English survival is based on plantation society, that they have placed it on, on how well they are going to do in terms of the agriculture, mm -hmm. whereas the Spanish are looking at the precious commodities. Mm -hmm. They find the gold and the silver, of right. course, out in, out west. Yeah. And so they're more concerned out west than they are with the east coast. Mm -hmm. But when the British come and start taking and engulfing the land and claiming it as their own, they have to come back and focus. Mm -hmm. And so when they focus, they realize that how the English goes is how their um, slaves go, mm -hmm. how the enslaved. Mm -hmm how many they bring in, how much work they get done, right. and that is clearly the point of which they are going to build plantation society. Mm -hmm. So what the Spanish do to counter that is that they offer, in uh, 1693, they offer an edict that says any, any enslaved person that runs away from the English society right. can come to La Florida and live for free. Mm -hmm. Now, <coughs> what happens live is... Live in freedom. Live in freedom, yes. live for mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. there's, we have two different scenarios there. They say you can go two ways. You can either go into the wilderness, live in, in Florida, in the wilderness, mm -hmm. eke out your own existence. Uh, we only ask that when you see the British, if you see them in the area, get word to us. Mm -hmm. That's all that we ask. Okay. And then there was a second, second offering or second group um, they made an offer. Well, a second group arises out of an offer, and they basically say you can live under Spanish authority. You can. You can. Mm -hmm. You can come to St. Augustine, mm -hmm. uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and live under Spanish authority. They built a fort. Um, it's called Fort Mose. Yeah. Uh, it's now a historical site. And uh, the thing about it is, of course, because it's Spanish and you're going under the authority, they had to. They had one. Um, one main rule is that they had to become Catholic, mm -hmm. right? So we see cultural differences starting Catholicism, to, right, right, starting to sure. to come about between the two groups of uh, the two groups of runaways. Mm -hmm. Now, those that are living in the wilderness, though, they are eking out their own existence, and they are retaining Gullah culture, mm -hmm. and they are keeping that Gullah culture. And so we see Gullah at this point, once it gets into Florida, and it goes from Florida to the Bahamas and to uh, Texas to Oklahoma and ultimately to Nacimiento, Mexico, there's a small group of Gullah people that actually do leave Fort Mose, and they end up in Cuba, and they have a, a uh, community there mm -hmm. as well. And so what we see is Gullah then turning into a diaspora once it comes into Florida. Mm -hmm. And so what then happens also is while they are creating these small villages and eking out this society, there are also Native Americans yeah. that, are, that are trying to escape plantation society as well mm -hmm. out of the same area. Mm -hmm. um, we see the larger numbers, of course, coming 
um, after the uh, Yamasee War. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, now, if I could stop you for a second, because yeah. you say you know the Native Americans um, are trying to escape plantation existence, also, right? And uh, because what has happened is they who originally occupied the land mm -hmm. now was were having their was having their land taken away from them yes and all not but and then captured by those who took the land right and mm -hmm. it's it's also more than that as well i know that's the most important thing mm -hmm. that taking your land and taking parts of your freedom mm -hmm. but also it's the encroachment of the society you see the basic problem and I won't go too far on tangent there, but the basic problem between Europeans and Native Americans was property use and land rights. Mm -hmm. That was the basic problem. They had two very different concepts. Right. Native Americans did not believe that you could own the land. Right. Whereas, of course, Europeans, you own what you can get or take. Right. 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 And so under that, those basic um, ideologies, the conflict in those basic ideologies, we see everything else stemming from mm -hmm. when terms of that relationship. Right. Now, when we look at relationship <coughs> between Native Americans and blacks or Africans at this time, mm -hmm. it has to develop mm -hmm. because uh, initially all Native Americans see are these black people on their land, clearing their land. Yeah. And so they had to come to the understanding that these black people, these Africans, were being forced mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't these Africans that were actually encroaching your land. It's actually the people who were driving the force and, and uh, were manipulating and quote-unquote owning them. Mm -hmm. And so... Let, 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 me, let me stop you there, because mm -hmm. I, I, I want to give the viewers an opportunity to see how you succinctly put this. As you, we talked about the definition of Maroons. You said, these Maroon communities established close relationships with the, na with the neighboring Native Americans. These two communities lived, for the most part, in harmony and provided the foundation for what would later become the Seminole Nation. I, I, I want to go further. Um, these, the, the culture was created by fusing various African traditions which resulted in Pan-Africanist ethos within the community. This type of Pan-African culture existed with minimal European interference. These Pan-African cultural traits manifested themselves in a variety of cultural forms that distinguished their communities from both Spanish society and Native American communities, regardless of the close proximity. Research has shown that these cultural traits were most prevalent in, com in communication, artistic expression, and religion. Yes, um, and uh, each one communication um, with the Gullah, what they did, um, and this is where we really start seeing Gullah turn into a diaspora. Because they are cohabitating, and nothing happens overnight, mm -hmm. right? They are, they are coming down through what was considered the buffer zone then, yeah. and of course it ends up becoming the last 13 colony becoming Georgia. Yeah. And so in that buffer zone, we start seeing a lot of Native Americans and uh, partic particularly the smaller bands of Native Americans, not the large ones, the Creeks, the Cherokee, but initially the smaller ones, the Hittites and the Uchis, the smaller bands, mm -hmm. um, and those that are smaller factions out of the Yamasee um, or Yamasee, some say, 
um, what's happening is they began to uh, cohabitate a little bit, but moreover, they're beginning to um, to find ways to communicate better with each other. Mm -hmm. So what we see is now the Gullah the Gullah dialect, Gullah language being starting to incorporate Native American words. Mm -hmm. And so once that happens, we see a metamorphosis, and we don't call that Gullah. We actually call that the Afro-Seminole Creole um, language. Okay. And so that is the mixture between Gullah, mm -hmm. which again is the West African and um, English words, mm -hmm. and now we have certain Native American words that are put into it, and that is what changes it, and that's what really puts us on that road to saying uh, Gullah is a diaspora. Mm -hmm. So now in that, right, back to the uh, relationship itself, uh, this cohabitation continues to grow. Yes. Because plantation society is encroaching upon Native Americans, mm -hmm. and it's encroaching in that they're chasing away the food, mm -hmm. which means they're changing their way of life. Mm -hmm. And so they are also having to depend on these runaways as well to show them how to actually plant different crops, how to rotate different crops mm -hmm. in order for sustainability now. Right. Because they can't rely on the hunting mm -hmm. that they have done for eons of years prior. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let me interject, please, because you, when you say plantation life, I want my viewers to make sure they understand what that is. That plantation life is about enslaving people to be able to grow the plantations. Right. And, but it's also turning for Native Americans is turning the land mm -hmm. into an agrarian society. Yeah. See, all those open fields where the deer ran and the, beer, and the bears went where they could have plenty of food, rabbits and all of that, yeah. are now being chased out because you have enslaved people who are now turning over the ground, mm -hmm. turning it all into a uh, field. Mm -hmm. And so that is also the encroachment, sure. that they are losing sure. their food supply as well. Right. Right. And so they are being forced out of the area. Mm -hmm. um, they're being forced out of the area as well as um, plantation society grows. So they began to cohabitate. Now, here's I, I gotta have I have to tell you this, and this this is important, and it kind of leads back to why you also get some of these negative um, <coughs> words. We've always had those general savage terms for Native Americans, but uh, the ironic thing about this particular case, and the ironic thing about the Seminoles is, the Seminoles are homo a homogenous group of Native Americans themselves. Mm -hmm. They are actually <clears throat> the the majority of them are former Creeks. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is there's a large schism in the Creek Nation. The mm -hmm. Creek Nation breaks. Mm -hmm. You have your upper Creeks that live in northern part of present-day Alabama. They're up, of course, by the uh, mountains up in that area. Mm -hmm. And then you have your lower Creeks mm -hmm. that are down in that corner between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Mm -hmm. Right? And so what happens is the the ones in the South, they began to accept plantation society. Mm -hmm. They even began to buy and trade enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And so they began to not resist plantation, but actually mm -hmm. join and work with plantation society. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks up north were basically, what are you doing? Yeah. We don't own people. We take them as war. We hold them so we won't have to fight them again. We keep their women so we can keep our numbers up. But we don't 
enslave them for our own living, yeah. you know, what yeah. are you all doing? Yeah. And so there's this schism. Mm -hmm. And so the northern, northern Creeks pushed themselves, pushed their way, rather, through Alabama. They pushed through the southern Creeks, and they come into Florida. Mm -hmm. And so when they come into Florida, they mix with the other Native Americans that are also running. You have the uh, Miccosukee. Like I said, you have the other smaller bands. You even have some Cherokee that are leaving North Georgia and the yeah. other areas of Georgia, and they're coming um, down into Florida. These are smaller bands, though, that are kind of broken away mm -hmm. because they needed to figure out how they were going to survive as well. Right. And so they become this homogenous group that we call the Seminoles. Uh, and it actually, when you look at the word and you trace it back, Semolina, Cimarron, um, it has different meanings, but the main one is um, Breakaway Creek or Renegade Creek. Mm -hmm. That's why everything you see with Florida State University and they yeah. say the um, Seminoles, they, the first thing you see up on it is Renegade mm -hmm. because that is one of the original terms for Semolina. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a negative term that the Spanish gave, Cimarron, uh, which basically meant wild beast, wild, mm -hmm. wild dog. And, and, of course, you can understand that it's just like anything else. When you're on the opposite side of the team, you know, yeah. with you the opponent, yeah. it's not going to be a positive word. On mm -hmm. the other side, yeah. um, even when we use the word griot, mm -hmm. uh, most people don't know for Europeans, they thought the word griot was a very negative word. It was a negative term. Mm -hmm. But we embrace that term. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same, same thing here. When we look at the words like um, savage and all of that good stuff, it's that opposite side of the fence type okay. of thing. When part of just as you're describing here, and we haven't gotten we haven't gotten you know into the book yet, where you really start to talk about what is the 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 violence, the the continual grabbing of the land, the 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 the, sla the slaughter of the people, mm -hmm. and to deal with the book, you know, we will get there, but you know. Just early on, I made a big note when, 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 when you talked about Angola being the first noted town there of the Native American settlements, Angola. And then you go, then on the same page is 18, in 1821, Angola was destroyed and the town burned. Mm -hmm. And we, in terms of the U.S. military, Mm -hmm. And again, its occupation just throughout history when either Native Americans have been involved or African Americans have been involved, there is the burning of a town, man. There's the, there's the slaughter of a people. And so on, what is this, on page 11, mm -hmm. I just felt, you know, without dramatizing it, you exposed the terror when one mm -hmm. thinks for a second that here are people who live every waking hour who one have been imported as slaves others who were the original inhabitants of the land mm -hmm. and every waking hour they must be mindful of the tyranny that is coming at them with fire and fury that they have no experience with for a very long time. 
I'm gonna start. Let me jump in there first. The point of clarification. Angola was actually a black Seminole village. It sat mm -hmm. next to it. Mm -hmm. um, Native Americans lived outside of Angola, um, and you are right. You see that time and time again. Um, even in in this period, with my with my book and dealing with the black Seminoles, there are actually two other instances where um, villages are being burned that they can just completely burn it down. And so we see um, that as a regular tactic, yeah. you know, that that is a regular tactic that was used all the way up through the 19, we can, we can trace that all the way through, all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and other places, that this is when communities, uh, when African-American communities are out of the graces, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. of the larger white community. Yeah. Yeah. They simply get rid of it, yeah. and they do it by normally by just destroying the whole thing. And and we all know fire is is a pretty good tool, and it's pretty quick and easy. Yeah. So you know, I don't want to jump around too much, but I but I want to okay. do this because as I was reading it, I wrote a I wrote in big letters the the the, the legitimacy of the conversation of reparations. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other show. But when you just go back and look at the basics here of what people had and the, the slaughter that took place and the, 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 the stealing by force of land, by murder and slaughter and genocide, mm -hmm. that issue of, of 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 reparations, just I I couldn't get past what am I on page eighteen, like man does this ever make a case without trying to do it for reparations? And I'll say this briefly so we can we can stay on topic yeah. about reparations. We have different instances. This this is clearly a case. Um, we have another case I'll mention in just a second. The issue is. There's always been uh, opposition, right? And it, that opposition to it comes in this idea of quantifiable measurement, right? How can we quantify things if we really want to say reparations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been the biggest tool against reparations, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing about it is we actually can. Mm -hmm. There are instances where we can quantify. Um, one in particular I always use, think about... All of those years, African Americans went paying taxes to state schools that they couldn't go to. Yeah. You see, so yeah. there are things that are yeah. quantifiable yeah. when we can look at when talking mm -hmm. about reparations. Yeah. So this whole notion about it not being able to be done because we can never quantify is that's a farce. That's yeah. that's just something yeah. to hold us off, yeah. like everything else. You're right. That is another conversation. Yeah. You know. So, so 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 I so I. You know, I make notes here. I said, you know, the desire to be free, the desire to be free and the fear of enslavement that is going on. And I, and I, and I just underlined something, you know, it says runaway slaves. Again, as we lead into how the, the, the freed blacks, the free blacks, the runaway slaves and the, 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 the Native Americans, the natives, how they and the, which became Seminoles and then came to the Seminole War, just leading up, leading up to that, 
again, is this idea of folks living, living and being all the time in terror. They're all the time living with the sense of terror that is just around the corner because these folks who get depicted in these movies, what they are, calling themselves United States military, calling themselves plantation society, all the rest, are or the, terrorists. Or the militia. Or the militia are terrorists. Yeah. Terrorizing the population. And you have to understand that it's a progression as well. Yes. It's a progression. Um, that's why we ended up in three Seminole Wars. Mm -hmm. um, because each time, uh, we can actually see how each Seminole War directly affected the growth of Florida and mm -hmm. Florida becoming what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, the first Seminole War opened up plantation society for Florida. Opened up plantation society. Yeah. Opened up where land owners came in and built wealth off of slaves, off the back of slaves. And taking the land from the Native Americans. And taking land, yes. To do so. Right. Um, and so what we see with that, first, with that first war is, with the first Seminole War, they get to clear out the Native Americans out of North Florida, uh, particularly the area from um, Tallahassee to Gainesville, mm -hmm. because that land was considered as fertile and in some places more fertile than even Georgia. And at this time, Georgia was becoming cotton king. And so the expansion into Florida, they figured, had to be done. Mm -hmm. And so when they removed them, we see plantation society coming in, but also this is when Florida becomes a territory. Florida becomes a territory just after the first Seminole War. And so you're right. And you're right. And Once Florida became a United, uh, became a United States possession in 1821, mm -hmm. whites were infuriated by black-Indian relationships. Thus, from 1821 to 1835, relations between Seminoles and whites steadily de deteriorated. So how dare you inferior people have, uh -huh. a, have a civil relationship? And not only that, continue to work together against us. Yeah. See, that's the, that's the thing. It up. But they gave them that common, you know, the enemy of my um, enemy. Yeah, right? sure. And so um, what we see is that first war, right mm -hmm. clearing out the land yeah. florida becoming a territory mm -hmm. the second one the one that the book is based on that ends up being a seven-year war mm -hmm. now here's the issue with that we have native americans who are agreeing to leave then we have native americans who say we're not going to leave right um and one in particular is osceola mm -hmm. Um, he's not a chief, but because of his war attributes, he becomes a war chief. Mm -hmm. And so you have those who are willing to stay, who want to stay and don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. But at the same token, you have uh, your black Seminoles, right? right? And at this point, uh, we stop calling them Maroons and we call them Seminoles because they now make a concerted effort to not only live together, yeah. we have... Um, familiar relationships now it usually mm. happens at the top but mm. they're still doing it they're sure. cohabitating together mm. Mm -hmm. all of those good things right? marrying yes yeah. intermarriage mm -hmm. it's mm. usually done at the higher level sure. but sure. Um, between chiefs and whatnot yeah. but it's it's being done um and so at that point right 
you got two different things that are going on, right? You got the Native Americans who want to keep the land. You got the blacks who want to keep their freedom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when they go into this war in 1835, is because they are fueled, of course, by the Indian removal policy um, from Andrew Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, which spent, who, who got his political career in Florida as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where he actually got the concept to develop the um, Indian removal policy yes. by helping Florida get rid of the um, Seminoles the first round in mm -hmm. North Florida. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, once this happens, the war becomes evident that it is not about removing Native Americans, but it is more so about getting these blacks back into slavery. Profoundly so. Not only for the work, yeah. because there is a number that could change things in terms of work. There's mm -hmm. a large enough workforce there that mm -hmm. could be garnered, mm -hmm. right? But not only that, not only the workforce, it is the concept, right? It's the idea that you have an area that is growing into a colony that could be a set, go from a settlement to a colony that could go to its own nation mm -hmm. based on the fact of the opposition of slavery. Mm -hmm. Meaning our slaves as plantation, our enslaved people, yeah. right, will get the notion to go to Florida mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there is a black nation there. Yeah. And so what happens, uh, what we find is at the end of the first Seminole War, mm -hmm. Uh, and before the second, right, toward the end of the first, mm -hmm. um, well, actually the, the first Seminole, excuse me, let me get it straight because we want to get the timeline right. There are There is a fort, mm -hmm. and it's called Negro Fort. It was yeah. left by yeah. the British yeah. to these blacks. Yeah. And for this period of time, that is a progression mm -hmm. to a nation. Mm -hmm. You start out as a settlement, mm -hmm. then you go to a colony, yeah. the colony gets a fort, yes. then it grows and it develops, and mm -hmm. next thing you know, mm -hmm. you can get, uh, your colony can develop into whatever else you want. If you mm -hmm. want it to be its own country, you want it to be its sure. own nation, sure. you could. Right. And so that was by far the worst idea. That was the worst. Mm -hmm. The most troubling. Well, that was, right, that yeah. was the most troubling, mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. the worst, that was mm -hmm. the worst scenario, mm -hmm. let's say that, that'd be better mm -hmm. to say, that was the worst scenario mm -hmm. for plantation society, sure. to have these, because as long, they figured as long as they were down here in Florida living free, mm -hmm. then they would always have to watch theirs, and they would just continuously run, right. and then plantation society would start to demise, mm -hmm. and they all and some even express the ending of plantation society mm -hmm. if this continues to go on in Florida. Mm -hmm. That this would end plantation society. And so, society. something I wanted to uh, examine here, um, because now you're saying, you know, we're we're we're, we're into the first war. Um, this, there's a contemplation of the second, um, but in the meantime, there had been some agreements. There had been in for those. For those who agreed to move out, there had been treaties. Right. There, 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 Two main treaties. There had been, there had been agreements. Mm -hmm. And how did those who were the oppressor mm -hmm. handle those treaties? Um, well, they were lopsided. <laughs> Call it like it is. They were lopsided treaties. Um, the first one that got the uh, Seminoles removed out of North Florida 
uh, pushed them down into central Florida um, around the area between present-day Orlando and Tampa and when they got down there uh, many of them didn't like the land. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lakes in that area, swampy. Yeah. Um, Native Americans didn't care for that. Again, in terms of lo 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 logistics here, they were occupying the most fertile land where they had where they had yeah. coastlines See, where they were able well, to not do only trade. The yeah. coastline yeah. and that land just below Georgia, where basically cotton yes. cotton is becoming king. Yes. Where yeah. that fertile land that yeah. was making cotton become king in mm -hmm. Georgia, mm -hmm. some of that land extended itself in the North Florida. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they just really were concerned about the northern portion sure. where that land was the sure. best. Right, right. And so where people, where, where the natives were occupying. Right. Yeah. It, was, it was Seminole land. Yeah. Though. And so, so therefore, you got to go off there you and go, go over to some land that's not nearly as fertile, not nearly as productive. Nowhere near. Right. And so they, some took the agreement. They took the buyout, they took the payment, all of that good stuff. Went down into the area, went down into the area, and then realized how bad the land was, how rough it would be to start over down there. And so many of them started returning. They came back saying, no, nah, we're not going for that. Yeah. You all, you know, you pulled a flim flam with that. Yeah. We're not going for it. Yeah. And so then we see other negotiations coming, mm -hmm. right? And so they, the Indian removal policy is starting to, to take place nationally, and Jackson is coming into office. He becomes president. So this Indian removal policy is going nationwide. Mm -hmm. And so then the offer then came to actually go out west. Yeah. And see that because that's what they would do. Yeah. They would take Native Americans who are out west and they bring them to the east coast. Mm -hmm. This is how Geronimo ends up in Florida. Mm -hmm. They bring Geronimo to Florida and they take Osceola mm -hmm. and take him out west. Mm. to present-day Oklahoma, which back then we called the Arkansas Territory. Right. And so when this happens, right, mm -hmm. when they start coming back, they say, no, this is not going to happen. Then they show them the land out west, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Again, Native Americans are split. Mm -hmm. Some Native sure. Americans say, right. take the buyout because they're going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. do, or, do we really want to be the ones responsible for, you know, ending our, our existence? Yeah. And then you have... The blacks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The blacks see that land as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. When they go out to the Arkansas Territory and they you know, the black Seminole leadership goes out there with the Native American leadership and they look at that land, they see it as an opportunity. The problem is the government didn't have that land in mind for them. It was just for the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. They had planned to round up all of the black Seminoles and return them to slavery. To slavery. Yeah. And so once this was evidently clear, mm -hmm. right, that is what brought the unifying effect in again. Mm -hmm. So even those who were willing to go said, oh, no, we're not going without them. Yeah. Because some of them were their children. Yeah, 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 some yeah. of them were their wives, their yeah. husbands, yeah. grandchildren. Yeah. So they were like, no, we... We're not going out there without them. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is negotiations start falling apart, mm -hmm. and we end up in, a, in that second war. Okay, and, and I, so I'm glad you say there you bring it to negotiations fall apart. We're in the second war because this time is going by 
extraordinarily fast. I knew we needed hours for this, but we now, just because of the clock, need to get to the, okay. the, 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 the that that second war, which is okay. the, which is the focus here. And and I think I'd like to examine it in part by calling out three names: okay. Abraham, John Caesar, and John Cavallo, who was better known as as, as Go for John. These are these are Africans who goes on to become even more known as John Hoare. That's right. So if you could kind of through their eyes take us or take the audience now into this war. What what was at what was at risk? Why they were fighting and what the results were. Okay. So by the time we get by the time we get to the 1830s mm-hmm. um Andrew Jackson is in office. Um, things have just deteriorated to the point where they are fighting now. Yeah. Uh, you have three major bands. Um, there is what we call the St. John's Band, mm-hmm. which is the St. John's River, um, which is on the East Coast. Uh, and the main city on the St. John's River is Jacksonville. Most people think Jacksonville is on the coast. It's actually on the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one band. The second band is what we call the Gainesville Band, which is Gainesville, uh, Central, North Central Florida. Um, it's a little closer to Jacksonville, but we consider it, um, well, a little closer, but it's on your way between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. So, so, and that's basically North Central Florida, right. again. And then you have your third band, which is in the Tampa area. When they get pushed down Angola, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the Tampa Bay area. So you got your three bands. Mm-hmm. All right. Each one of those men you named represented each one of the, the bands in the area. Yes. John Caesar was the oldest because he came out of the oldest area, which was St. John's. Because, mm-hmm. of course, when the um, initial enslaved people began to run away and abscond, they came straight down the coast, right. straight into St. Augustine. Right. So they stayed around the St. John's River. Right. All right. John Caesar was a, uh, he was an older, mm-hmm. older gentleman. We figure him, we have no, no pictures of him or anything, but we figure him to be um, early 50s at best, mm-hmm. mid-50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. His job was recruitment. Yeah. He was the best recruiter. He would go on doing what we call plantation raid. Yes. He would ra- raid the plantation for supplies, guns, Mm-hmm. horses, cattle, all that good stuff, but then he would convince others to mm-hmm. run away. Again, because of the clock, let me, tell you, let me tell you something. We got four minutes left. Oh, well, I, can, only, I can do it. Only four minutes left. I can do I it. I need you to. <laughs> I wish you would have given me the five-minute notice. I would have <laughs> run it then. Okay. But very quickly, mm-hmm. Caesar dies John Caesar, um, yes. because he's doing these plantation raids mm-hmm. in 35. Mm-hmm. It's his plantation raids to get the war going, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Caesar dies. He's an older. Like I said, he was going back and forth. He had his wife was still on the plantation, right. so we ascertained that she was probably um, a cook or something at high visible. Mm-hmm. That's why she could never run away. Mm-hmm. And then in the in the uh, Gainesville band, we have what we call our primary um, black Seminole chief, and that was Abraham. Right. And he was the advisor or the chief. Um, this is a, this is Abraham. This is Abraham. This, this this is Abraham right here. Y'all need to know about Abraham. <laughs> he is the he's the chief black Seminole, yeah. um, especially after Caesar dies in thirty five. He yeah. takes over. 
Um, he's the negotiator. Yeah. He speaks because Mikanoffit doesn't speak English well. Chief so Mikanoffit, right. Mm-hmm. Right, Chief mm-hmm. Mikanoffit mm-hmm. doesn't speak English well. Mm-hmm. So he's the main person negotiating yeah. um, with the government mm-hmm. and with um, the United States. And then there's a third band, and that's John, Go For John, mm-hmm. or John Horse. Right. He's a lot younger. Mm-hmm. He's in his 20s. Right. Uh, but he is the son of a Seminole Native American chief. Right. But because his mother is black, he's still considered a black Seminole. Sure. He doesn't belong sure. to sure. a band. Right. I mean, he doesn't belong to one of their bands. Mm-hmm. All right. So what happens is Abraham is the leader in Florida during the war. Mm-hmm. But John, because... John Horse is a lot younger. He's also who he's right hand, his right hand is, right. places him in a higher category. Mm-hmm. He's Osceola's mm-hmm. visor. Mm-hmm. He's Osceola's right hand. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, I want to say this quickly, I think Osceola doesn't get the recognition that Geronimo, right. Sitting Bull, and Chief Joseph get right. is because of who he was. Mm-hmm. He had a black Seminole wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of the people in his his band, his war band, mm-hmm. were black Seminoles. Mm-hmm. So, so, in, so in these last 90 seconds, mm-hmm. I'd like for you to share, w- again, what was the, you characterized this as the most successful slave rebellion. Yes. Um, talk about what was at stake and what was accomplished. Okay. Uh, what was at stake, of course, was re-enslavement and enslavement for some because we're talking two and three generations now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking people who yeah. had never known slavery now, just yeah. their grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is, of course, the most important thing, yeah. right? But it was also the growth, the growth of plantation society itself. Yeah. Uh, we can trace, and i say it very quickly, each Seminole War, opened up Florida and Plantation Society, uh, or Florida Society, period, mm-hmm. by the time we get to the third. First Seminole War, two years after the first Seminole War ends, Florida becomes a territory. Mm-hmm. Then we had a second Seminole War, 1835-1842. Three years later, after the second Seminole War, after they decide that, okay, the blacks can go out west, we won't re-enslave you, which gives them the victory, why I say it's a successful rebellion, Florida becomes a state. Mm -hmm. Florida becomes the 45th state. Mm -hmm. And then the third Seminole War, they wanted to open up South Florida. Uh, They were even crazy enough to think that they could drain Lake Okeechobee (laughs) uh, just to flush them out. And so they went into a third war that ended in 1858. Mm -hmm. That war ended because they felt like the Seminole numbers were low enough Mm -hmm that they didn't have to worry about them impeding progress. Mm -hmm. So they were willing and able and ready to go into South Florida. But, of course, this ends in 58. They leave the Union. They go into the, and by 1861, they end war. And for those those who were being, where genocide was being practiced against, they had to make the decision. Stay here and fight and know that we're going to be slaughtered. Or agree to move on right and they move on and they lived and that's what kind of um changed abraham's leadership yes. right because he has to negotiate yes and of yes. course they don't you know when yes. you negotiate some people not going to be happy mm-hmm. but the best thing was to negotiate that move to the arkansas territory mm-hmm. present day um mm-hmm. present day uh oklahoma yeah. 
So uh, uh, that uh, was uh, the best. That was the best choice. And most of them got on. Yeah. The one got on board with it, yeah. uh, such that, and this is important, by 1838, yeah. most black Seminoles were out. Yeah. And, and uh, after kicking a whole lot of U.S. military butt, they got to live another day. They got to live with freedom. With freedom. Thank you so much for coming, Dr. Dixon. Thank you, Ed. You got to bring me back. We got to talk more. Yes, more. Yes, we got to talk more. Thank you for joining us this evening. For more information about this program or any other program produced by WHUT, go to WHUT.org. Goodbye, and may God bless, and may you stay free. program was produced by WHUT, Howard University Television, and made possible by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we just heard the extensive interview uh, on uh, the history of the uh, black uh, Seminole Wars against the U.S. government during uh, the 19th century. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding comments. Don't you abuse it I gave you tender love and care Oh baby Now don't you misuse it Girl, and if you got somebody else If you got somebody else on your mind I want you to please 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 baby ah, let me down
You ought to give credit, baby. Yeah. Oh, baby. Where credit, where credit is due right now.
Welcome back, and uh, that was Etta James with the tune entitled Let Me Down Easy. And uh, that's going to uh, conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, November 25th, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We're going to close out uh, with the Music of Horace Silver from the 1968 album entitled Serenade to a Soul Sister. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.